Well, good morning, church family. What a precious time of worship. For those of you who are with us online or those of you in person, I know you were welcomed a few moments ago, and I want to welcome you as well and invite you to take your copy of God's Word as I preach and spit and hack through this sermon. You may can tell if you attend our service weekly uh, that I don't have my normal strength this morning. I have tested negative of anything you should be scared of, uh, but I have a good old-fashioned, hardcore, congested head, and I am struggling. I arranged a backup preacher this morning, and he was ready to go, but when I woke up and I could speak, I said, well, I'm going to preach, and so I'd like for you to bear with me this morning. If you are a guest of ours, I will not meet you today. Uh, on every other day, I would tell you I'd be out in the concourse, I'd love to meet you, but uh, there are many things I want to share. Whatever's in my head, I don't want to share. And so, however, my lovely wife is going to be out in the concourse. She is by far a much more pleasant person to meet. So at the conclusion of the service, you go and meet her and come back next week, and I am sure that I will be on the mend. I stand before you a grateful pastor for what God has done this weekend in the lives of our students. I always feel that way. I am indebted to all of the men and women who worked a full 40, 50, 60-hour week last week. And as soon as they got off work on Friday, they showed up here at the campus. And they were here the rest of the evening Friday till late and all day yesterday. 14 hours here on our campus working and serving and leading both members of our staff and members of our laity. You truly are the heroes. And in an effort to not try to show too much emotion, I will not dwell on it. But I stand even more grateful today because my 12-year-old son got saved in this room Friday night. And I, uh, we've been praying for his salvation for many, many years, and every child comes to faith differently. We are a big proponent of not forcing that on our children. And he called me. I was at home in bed. And he called me and uh and with tears and with a broken voice talked about what Christ had done in his life that evening on Friday as Tripp preached the gospel. I am eternally grateful for a church that prioritizes the next generation. If he makes no other decision correctly and he'll get many wrong, he made the greatest decision of his life. And one of the great joys of seeing our children raised in the Lord and our students raised in the Lord is that we give them a great foundation. It is that foundation that I have the opportunity this morning to lay another brick in, to put some more mortar on. It is the foundation of God's Word. And I like at times to be limited because I want so badly for the power of what is about to happen to be found in the truth of the Word and not the charisma or the personality of the person on the stage. If you are a guest of ours, we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 10 in a series we've called American Idols. It is a series about idolatry. Idolatry, for many of us, is relegated to a picture of people in ancient times bowing to a golden calf or a wood-carved podium or a pole or some type of monument that's been built. But idolatry actually is deeper than that. 
I've been giving you two working definitions of idolatry from two theologians, certainly much more equipped to be theologians and much more brilliant than myself. The first one is from John Piper. Piper defines idolatry as anything that we come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true and living God. The reason I love that definition, the reason I've shared it with you for the last three weeks, and the reason I'm sharing it with you today and next week when we finish this series, is because we so often associate idolatry with the worship of an idol, and that's true. But we worship what we rely on. We can say we worship the Lord, but the heartbeat of what we adore is that which we rely on. And I like the fact that Dr. Piper gets to that point where he says anything in our life that we begin to rely on for joy and peace and purpose and comfort more than the Lord has the risk of becoming our idol. Uh, Tim Keller adds even more to it when he says these words. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. So to rely on and to be consumed by. One of the things that Christians have to realize is that Paul here is writing to Christians. So ultimately what that means is it's possible to be committed to Christ, to be born again, and drift back into idolizing people, places, things, relationships, accomplishments more than the intimate connection and communion we should have with the Lord. Now, we've been walking through this since we were in chapter 10, verse 1, but we come today to verse 14. Before I began to walk through the passage, let's just read the first few verses. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So there's the command right, right out of the gates. Flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. A couple of things there. That therefore in verse 14 is a really strong therefore. We've seen it once before in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, Paul makes this big point. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That therefore has an emphasis in it that is unique. It's found only here and then here. And, and then the next thing he says is, my beloved. I think this is interesting because so often when we hear commands from the Bible, we hear them coming from someone with authority and a finger pointed at us. Well, there are times in our lives where we need that. I know certainly in my life there were plenty of guidance that I got, and a lot of it came through good old firm commands. You will do this, and you will not do that. There's a place for that. But when you're really trying to move people who, quite frankly, can go out from this service and live any way you want, I have no moral control over your life, you better get to the heart. And if you want to get to people's heart, you better make sure they know that what you are saying comes from affection, comes from love. We don't preach against idolatry because we're mad at people for committing idolatry. We preach against idolatry. We call you to make Christ the center of your life because we love you. I think about what John said in 1 John about idolatry. Little children, keep yourselves 
free from idols. That little children is not derogatory. He, he's not talking down to them. He's actually speaking from the perspective of a loving father. And, and I think that's important because there's some hard language in here and Paul doesn't mince words. But he does so because the truth is really the most loving thing we could ever speak into one another's life. And then there's one more thing about verse 14 and verse 15. If you'll look in your passage, I want to show you. He says, he says in verse 15, I speak to you as sensible, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he's talking about uh, the scriptures and he begins to speak about fleeing, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Here he says, flee from idolatry. It's the second time we have a flee in the scripture of 1 Corinthians. Run away from this. Get away from this. But, but, but he knows that the temptation toward replacing God with other things in our lives will never go away. In fact, last week we dealt with temptation. He knows that if he doesn't get people to go on a mental journey, to really take a step back and consider what it is he's asking, he won't move the needle at all in their lives. So if you'll, if you'll go with me here, he's appealing to their heart. He's saying, my beloved, listen to me. Think about this. Just consider what you're doing. Last week we dealt with temptation. Today we dealt with tables. We deal with tables, really the two tables of life. Now, now when we deal with these tables, I'm going to do what Paul does. I'm going to ask you to think. If you've ever tried to talk somebody out of a bad decision, you sense as though their mind is made up, but you believe wholeheartedly they're making a mistake. You can be opinionated, you can be boisterous, but if you really care, at some point you'll sit down with them and you'll go, listen, listen, I really want you to rethink this, and here are the reasons why. What you're doing in that moment is you're saying, it's not enough for me to just tell you my opinion about the situation, I want you to know why I really believe you're about to make a mistake. Perhaps someone is on the precipice of a difficult decision that is the right decision, and they lack the courage to go through it. You may sit with them. It may be an adult child. It may be someone you work with. And you go, listen, I know this is hard, but let me remind you again. Here is why you need to do this. We ask them to consider what it is they're facing. Well, that's what I want you to do. I want you to consider this passage because that's what the passage asks you to do. And then Paul does something fascinating. He brings before us two tables. The table on my left represents the Lord's table. It's a simple table. It has only two elements on it, the bread and the cup. The table on my right is purely representative, but it has some of the things we tend to chase, we tend to idolize. As we look at the text and the two tables, and you look at me and the two tables, I want you to ask yourself a question. Where do you find yourself dining the most? Read with me in God's word silently as I read aloud. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through verse 22. Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. I speak to you, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? Paul's making his point. What am I saying? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, verse 20. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then he ends with a question. <clears throat> Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It may seem odd of all the analogies Paul could have used that he went with the analogy of a table. But it's only odd to you and me. It would not have been odd in Corinth, and I'll tell you why. I want you to separate two issues that we've already dealt with. If you've been with me through this study, you'll know that in chapter 8 and chapter 9, one of the controversies in the church is the meat that had been previously offered to idols. And by the way, idols can't do anything with meat. So once they laid it on the altar, they had to do something with it or it would rot. So often the meat that was ceremonially offered to idols was then redistributed to the markets and you could buy it. You could buy the meat that had been used in the idol worship of Corinth. And some of the Christians said, don't make any difference to me what you did with it. Ribeyes cheat right now and I'm going to get some. And so they would eat it because they didn't believe in the ceremony or the idols. The other Christians in Corinth said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I got saved out of that lifestyle. I don't want anything to do with it. I struggled to even support the financial gain of those who would take the meat and sell it in the market. This is a stumbling block for me. And so Paul gives us one of the greatest treatments of how to balance our freedom in Christ with also our need to be sensitive to the struggles of others. That is eating the meat after the ceremony. But there was something else in Corinth, a related but different event. There were idol feasts, I-D-O-L. In other words, the Corinthian calendar was filled with moments and holidays where the people would gather and have massive feasts in the honor of some false god. There would be holiday away from work. There would be music playing in the streets. There would be various moral and immoral activities happening around these temples. And some of the Corinthian Christians who had been saved out of that found themselves drifting back toward participating in these feasts. Hey, it's just a cultural thing. I'm going to go and enjoy it. I want to see my aunt and my uncle, my brothers in town from a surrounding village. I can participate publicly and stay committed to Christ privately. And so Paul, as he's trying to say to flee from idolatry, imagines before them two tables, the table of the Lord's Supper 
and the table set in these idol feasts. And he shows how different they are. He does this by asking them to consider three parts of it. First, consider the distinct communion of the Lord's table. He does not start with the negative. He starts with the positive. He said, wait a minute. You running off to participate in these idol feasts, even though you say you can be in the world but not of the world, you say you can participate yet not be tainted, let me remind you of the new table you've been given. And then what he does is he begins to describe the background of the Lord's table. Now, most scholars believe that he's not trying to give us a full fleshed out theology, but he is trying to make a point. Let's see what his point is. Look with me in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So Jesus, on the night that he took the Passover and turned it into the Lord's table, the Bible says he took the cup and he blessed it. Now, the order is not important to Paul. He starts with the cup. Jesus starts with the bread and goes to the cup. The order is not the significant point of the text. What he's saying to these believers is, when we gather around in the context of a church gathering, which would have been in a home at that point, and we've worshiped and we've sang, and we're going to commemorate what God has done, do we not participate? And that word really runs this idea of fellowship around and are connected to. Do we not participate in the blood of Christ? When anyone is saved, whether it be my son two nights ago, you in your life, me in 1986, when I am saved, theologically, the Bible teaches that the blood of Christ is applied to my sin. The blood of Christ has already been shed. It does not need to be continually shed. It's why Protestant evangelicals don't have crucifixes on our necks or in our churches. We don't believe Jesus is suffering on the cross today. The last thing he said was, it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. But the power of Christ's blood is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Why? Because blood represents life. You can take a perfectly healthy human being or a perfectly healthy animal. You drain all the blood out, that will die. Blood was seen as life. To lose your blood is to bleed to death. And it can happen very quickly depending on the size of the artery that is severed in an accident or in war or through some terrible disease. And so blood represents life. Jesus tells us that God affirmed the wages of sin are death. And therefore, in order for sin to be paid for, Life must be offered. And the Christian knows that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a foreshadow of a greater lamb who would come and shed his blood for our sins. Now, this is not new to you if you are a Christian. It's not new to Paul's audience. He had been with them for several years. He's just trying to remind them of what's going on at this table and why it matters. He then says something pretty fascinating in verse 16. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood? 
the bread that we break. And of course, in the Lord's table, bread like this would have been taken and it would have been broken and it would have been shared around the table just as Jesus did. And this bread represents the body. You've heard that all of your life. Look what Paul says in verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's a beautiful, symbolic gesture. Paul's saying, when we gather around the table, there's one source of bread, one loaf, one container. We all take from it. And we all take from it because there was only one body given for us. There aren't multiple Jesuses. There's not a Jesus for every century. There's not a Jesus for every religion. There's one Jesus. And in that moment, it also reminds us that we become one body. This is why churches are called the body of Christ. Jesus, I don't want to scare you, <clears throat> Jesus is not here. Now you may say, oh, but his presence is here. Sure it is. The power of the Holy Spirit is gathered. Whenever the church gathers, the, the Spirit is here. Jesus has not been on earth since his ascension. Jesus rules and reigns at the right hand of a father, and he's working on my house. The Bible says that he is preparing a place for us, and he will return. Upon his ascension, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one God, shown to us in three persons, it is perfectly accurate and theologically sound to say that <coughs> Jesus lives in us, that Jesus lives in us through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, watch this. That means if Jesus is on earth today physically, and he is, he is on earth today physically in the hands and the feet and the minds and the brains and the eyes and the mouths of every person who is indwelt by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. So there was a time where if you had had dinner with Jesus, you could have touched his shoulder and said, this is the body of Christ. But now the body of Christ in the world today is every blood-bought, spirit-filled, redeemed Christian. We are the body. And Paul says this oneness with Christ and this oneness with one another really defines who we are. Now this is serious and it's important. And there is a spiritual aspect to it. In fact, very briefly, we need to avoid two extremes about understanding the Lord's Supper. The first extreme, which is incorrect, is the sacramental view. This would be the view held by our friends who are of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholicism, of course, teaches that what we call the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. We don't use that word sacrament. We call it an ordinance. We can say we're having communion. Uh, some people grew up in a tradition where it's called the Eucharist. That comes from the word to give thanks, Eucharisto, to give thanks. And so the Eucharist is the giving thanks of God's, for God's blood and his body through the Lord's Supper. And so there are many terms floating around, but we don't call this a sacrament. And there's a reason for that. The Catholic Church teaches transubstantiation. It's a big old word that simply means miraculously the body and blood of Jesus are present at the table. Catholic doctrine teaches that when you take the wafer or you drink the wine given to you by the priest as they take 
communion that you receive inwardly the actual blood and body of Jesus. Now, The church rejected this during the Reformation and on forward. And so we don't believe that. We also don't believe that that is one of the ways we go get grace. A sacramental system says these are the ways you go get grace. You go do these things and the grace of Jesus is dispensed into your life. This is why so often people in the sacramental tradition will define their faith by how often they go to mass or how often they visit the priest or how often they pray the rosary or whether or not the child received infant baptism or last rites for the dead or marriage. These are the sacraments of the Catholic Church. You you can Google them. And the Catholic Church teaches that these are the means by which grace comes into your life. We believe the Bible clearly teaches that grace comes into our life by faith alone. I trust in the finished work of Christ and the grace of a personal relationship with him comes into our lives. And so we don't believe in the sacramental view. But also, and this is where we risk it much, is that another view is the symbolic view. Oh, it's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. I heard that all my life. It's just a symbol. The body represents, is represented by the bread, and the juice represents the blood because we were Baptists. We didn't have no wine in our houses. The juice represents the blood. Now, again, that is true in that this bread is merely bread. It always will be bread, and if I were to take communion in front of you this morning, this bread would never be anything other than bread as my body digested it. And this juice, which because I can spill peanut butter, they didn't put any in it, and this juice... And this juice would be juice from the time that I ingested it until my body digested it. So, yes, these are symbols. But God is always present at his table in a unique and dynamic way. So seriously that Paul's going to tell us in chapter 11, don't you flippantly take the bread and the cup. In fact, some people in Corinth had fallen sick out of judgment for abusing the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why some of you, so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So, so Paul equates death and sickness in believers' lives as at least in part due to them flippantly and irreverently treating this like a potluck supper with no interest in the reverence of the moment and the proclamation of the gospel. I think that's important for us to remember because it also adds to the contrast. So once he reminds us of the distinct communion of the Lord's table, he then secondly asks us to consider the dark communion of the world's table. So on this table are just some modern-day things that are in and of themselves not sinful. It's not a sinful thing to earn a degree. It's not a sinful thing to buy and sell a house. It's not a sinful thing to have a nice pair of shoes or want to look fashionable. It's not a sinful thing to step in front of a mirror every once in a while and check yourself. In fact, we appreciate all the work you can do with that. It's not a sinful thing to enjoy family and friends and maybe commemorate it with a selfie. It's not a 
sinful thing to go hemorrhage money down in Orlando and take your family out of guilt because other people post about it. It's, a, not, a, it's not a sinful thing to, to love your favorite sports team, whoever they may be. It's not a sinful thing to take good care of your body and, and to lift weights. Not everybody given a body like mine. You have to work at it. And so it, it, I really can't argue that it's not a sinful thing at times when you've obligated yourself rightly and you've spent your money correctly to splurge a little bit. This is a bag worth a few dollars unless you put the Lululemon sign on it and then you need to refinance your house in order to pay for it. In in, in and of yourself, in and of themselves, all of these things certainly have had their place in in, in, in my life, the earning of degrees, the purchasing of homes, the enjoying my family on vacation, the, the passion for a sport, the, the things that we pursue. And, and your table might look different. I, I, I just ask our worship team to collect some things in representation. This is the table. But here's the problem. The problem is when we attempt to substitute this table for this table, we began to participate in idolatry and we don't even know it. Look what the passage says. The passage says this, beginning in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Remember, Paul's already made that point earlier. In the scriptures, we see that in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. When he's dealing with that. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know. So Paul never believed there was anything substantive to any idol. He says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So Paul wants to be clear. He's not worried about statues or ornaments. He's not casting judgment on a nice shoe or a home or a degree in and of themselves They are not God, they are not supernatural, and they in and of themselves pose no threat to the lordship in our lives until the force behind them that is often against God begins to rule in our hearts, which is exactly why he says this in the passage. He says, beginning in verse 19, What do I apply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans, excuse me, (coughs) sacrificed, that what pagans, that what the pagans sacrificed, they offered to demons, not to God. And then he says, I do not want you to be participants. Notice that word. That's the third time. We participated in the cup, the blood. We participate in the body, the bread. And he's saying, that's good. Here's bad. I do not want you to have anything to do with the adoration of demonic forces. And there's his point. Idols are not idle. Idols are not idle. Idolatry is not idle. We, we, we may think we're just chasing after something in this world that brings us pleasure, but we forget what Paul told the Ephesian church. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Can I just tell you something? Demonic powers don't need you to know their name. They're perfectly fine with being incognito. The enemy's purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. For those without Christ, he wants them to perish forever with him in hell. For those who have Christ, who are saved, he would love to get involved in their lives to the degree that he can in order to derail their witness, to cause them to miss opportunities to serve the Lord. And he does not need you to know his name. He does not need you to attribute the work to him. This is what Paul is saying. Imagine in Corinth an arrogant, puffed-up Christian saying, Oh, Paul, I know that temple to Aphrodite don't mean anything. I know that idol on this corner street doesn't mean anything. But my whole family will be there eating and feasting. And and I know they'll be singing some songs to that idol. And somebody will have a prayer to that idol. They may even sacrifice a plate of food to that idol. I'm not interested in all that. I know that Jesus has set me free. But I can go enjoy it and still stay strong in the Lord. I was trying my best to think through some modern-day examples. You know, there's a difference between enjoying a secular song and throwing yourself in a secular concert filled with alcohol, foul language, and people being very grotesque in the way they act. There's a difference between love and ball and bowing down at the altar of some league or some sports dream that pulls you and your family away from church for months at a time. There's a difference between having to put up with a coworker that likes to use explicitive language and hurrying home so that you and your wife don't miss three hours of Yellowstone. There's a lot of this world I can't control coming at me, but I do get to decide where I sit. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, there's two tables. You can sit here and commune with the Lord. And then as God's grace allows in your communion with the Lord, you can enjoy the good things of the world. Or you can sit here and this become the means of your joy and the means of your purpose and the means of your happiness. And then this, oh, this is on Sundays. And this is what Paul is trying to stress to a first century context that is as relevant relevant today as it's ever been. You decide. There are two forces at work, which to me leads to the final thing Paul would ask us to consider. The definite conflict between the two tables. You know, our faith is full of a lot of knots, try knots, Hope nots, may nots, should nots. But there are some cannots too. Look how he ends the passage. He ends where I'll end because my voice is about done. Verse 21 You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? 
Are we stronger than he? Jesus said it this way in the book of Matthew. He says these words. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, and money there, mammon, the material things of the world. Luke is recorded it this way. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, God and the world. It's just real simple. I'll illustrate it. I can sit here at this table. I don't sit at this table out of perfection. I don't sit at this table because I deserved his body or his blood. I don't sit at this table because I'm a pastor. I sit at this table because by faith, anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ can and will be saved and is invited into a relationship with him. And from this table of communion, I then interpret every other thing in my life. Every decision has to be poured, pun intended, through the blood. Every decision has to pass over the bread. Is this work opportunity? Is this relationship? Is this choice of language? Is my reaction to this difficult situation? Is the discernment that I need for this decision? Does this honor the blood of Christ? Does it honor the body of Christ? Am I living from this table? I can sit at this table. I can also sit at this table. I can daydream about my next pair of shoes be more committed to my workouts than I am my quiet times or chase after the next fashion rage or twiddle my thumbs constantly thinking how can I get my family on our next vacation so that our posts look like my friends' posts. I can work on that degree that I think will help me and, and it may help me but I can be consumed my education or if we could only get that dream home. I've saved thousands of images online. I've looked at plans and I really want that home or or my kid, if my kid can just get a baseball scholarship, I'll, I'll sacrifice years of him being in church in the name of a scholarship if that's what it takes. And all of a sudden what happens is, is that I spend my whole life at this table and that, well, that becomes my past. Oh, I got saved. And hopefully my future. Oh, I'll join the Lord one day at his table. But I don't sit at that table. Now, this may be obvious, and I'm not trying to be elementary, I'll tell you what I cannot do. I can sit at that table. I can sit at this table. But I can only sit at one of them. I can't sit at both at the same time. I only have one life. It's very possible for Christians to know this table and to be drawn to this seat. But the good news is, it's also so true that you can be at this table and know it, realize it, be convicted. Say, I'm going to put this stuff down. I'm going to put it in its place. I'm going to let Christ rule over my education. And Christ rule over my passions. And Christ rule over the way I spend my money. And Christ define my family, not my own version of what I think my family should look like based on the social media posts. I'm going to let Christ deal with the political mess I can't handle. I'm going to let Christ rule the world. And I'm going to stop getting angry about the things that are out of my control. And I'm going back to this table. It's as if every day I step into the restaurant of his grace and there's a sign and it says please seat yourself. Where are you going to sit? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your challenge this morning. For the opportunity to see your word so vivid and so real in our lives. 
Thank you for the reminder that I, as a born-again, spirit-filled, blood-bought child of the King, I have the potential today to drift toward idolatry. I have the potential today to make the good things that you have blessed us with in this life become more important to me than the greatest thing you have blessed us with in this life. And that is a right relationship with you. And Lord, I do not share this message in a condescending spirit. I want every believer under my voice to simply do what our beloved apostle Paul asked us to do. Consider this. Think about this. That we might not bow to idols. That we might be people deeply committed to many endeavors, but solely devoted to our King, His kingdom, and His will for our lives. Church family, I want you to think on these things for just a moment as you hear these words.